You are listening to Seniors Junction Podcast. Your hosts today, Namrata Bagaria and myself, Paul Merkley, were the co-founders of Seniors Junction. Our special guest today, Pat Spadafora. She's a solo consultant and her company is Kaleidoscope Consulting and she's the founding director of the Sheridan Center for Elder Research. And the director at the moment is our other special guest, Leah Tsosos. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so could you tell us a bit about yourselves and what you do? Leah? Thank you, Pat. Um, as Paul said, I'm Leah Totos. I'm currently the director of Sheridan Center for Elder Research. We're an applied research group on campus at Sheridan's Oakville, uh, Trafalgar location. Uh, we've been in operation for about 18 years now, which is quite a long time for a college-based research center. We have a dual mandate, which is really to conduct high quality research that will enhance the lives of older adults and their families, but also to serve as an education and resource hub for Sheridan and the broader community. We really take our responsibility for knowledge translation and dissemination very seriously and wanna make sure that everything that we learn can go back to the community or the, the various uh, partners that we work with to help enhance their programming and enhance our knowledge in this space. My background personally is in kinesiology and in neuroscience of aging. And so it's a really great opportunity to be able to work at the center and help bring together interdisciplinary collaborations that will explore the challenges and opportunities of aging. Thank you, Pat. What about you? Boy, listening to Leah <clears throat> makes me realize how much I miss the center and what a rich <laughs> history we have there. Um, as Paul said originally, I'm Pascal Flora, and I was the founding director of the Sheridan Center for Elder Research. I left the center at the end of 2017 to really do much of the much of the kind of work that Leah has described. I wanted to take those years of <clears throat> excuse me opportunities I had at the center as well as teaching at Sheridan and take that back to the community and be able to work a little bit more at a community level uh, in, uh, as I transitioned into this new role. So I work with all kinds of community groups right now. Much of it is about building capacity, but many of the projects I've been involved with since I left Sheridan, as well as with Leah at Sheridan, have involved how to uh, create more inclusive opportunities for older adults. I prefer to look at social inclusion rather than social isolation. So that's what I've been up to. And any chance I get to work with Leah now is, it's a bonus. Yeah, this is a fun opportunity to, yeah, to read this. So thank you for hosting us to have this virtual conversation. We are, we are, we are very happy to have this. Like I'm already blushing and smiling so much. So the ones who are not, <laughs> the ones who are listening, go go see the YouTube video of this because seeing them happy, I'm happy because <laughs> <laughs> this was not part of the plan. And so yes, I have red colors to show my happiness and express like okay, I'm excited, uh, but. Uh, so this is an amazing, uh, amazing opportunity for us to have the past director and a presenter. It's the first time, right? So a lot of people like they come on the podcast and they're like, oh, this is the first time you're recording. But this is the first like past director, present director. So I'm going to ask you a question, but in a different way. So my typical question would be, how do you find social isolation in older adults or senior isolation, both physical and social? Um, but let's say, how have you seen it over the years? 
because you have that kind of uh, uh, data available or that experience available. So what was senior isolation when you started it? Where is it now? And has it gotten worse? Has it gotten better? Like what are the pain points? Pat, why don't you take this one, this one first since you have the longer history with the topic area than me. Sure, I would say that some of the initial work that I've done in this area actually was with Leah. Uh, and that was through a, a social sciences and humanities research grant, that's a federal grant in Canada, that funded a project that we worked on, really trying to identify older adults in the community who were isolated and to come up with some way of connecting them to services and resources. Um, I continued that kind of work in the community uh, when I left Sheridan and managed a, a so I'm gonna still call it social inclusion, but a social inclusion project in Hamilton. And then, uh, and currently involved in a project that is very much related to social inclusion as well. How have I seen it changed? You know, it's really hard. It's hard to answer that for only one reason. I can't address that without addressing the impact of the pandemic. And so whether some of the changes I've seen would have happened anyway, it's impossible to, to know really. So I'm just gonna make a couple of comments and then Leah and I are, we're really accustomed to bouncing off of one another. But one thing that, we, that I learned through the uh, Sheridan project, and that was aimed at particular cultural groups living within the area that the college served. One thing I learned there was that it is very hard to identify people who are truly isolated they, because the, they are isolated. And one of the things that helped us, I believe Leah in that project was to realize that we could not rely on traditional mainstream uh, social service organizations, for example, to link us with older adults. So we threw, because they didn't know who they were either. So we threw a lot of that kind of thinking just out the window and we did, we did other things. For example, we had a student who spoke uh, Mandarin. All right. Remember that student, Leah? I can't think of her name right now. And so she was very good at helping to link us with some of the Chinese speaking older adults in the community. Another student posted flyers in the Punjabi food markets in the Brampton area. Like we went outside of those traditional means to see whether we could identify people. So that, that was one thing I learned in that project. In the project in Hamilton, I would say that one of the biggest learnings, that wasn't me personally, but the frontline staff who were working on the project found this didn't apply to everybody, but if we were talking about people who were quite vulnerable, older adults who are quite vulnerable, the, the, the staff on the ground went in thinking that their role would be to link these older adults to social opportunities in the community, for example, at the YWCA, to really try to link them and help them become involved. Well, what they discovered, if you think of that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, was that when they went there, they would find that they didn't have food, they weren't getting their medication, they were sleeping on a mattress on the floor. So they really had to step back and realize that until we address those basic food security, other kind of security needs, you can't intervene to really provide somebody with that kind of social contact. So those are a few things that I've seen 
change, one thing that you may or may not come back to in this podcast, I'm not sure, is the huge digital divide that came up during the pandemic. And, you know, I've made a few notes uh, before we met today about some of the things that I've seen around digital literacy during the pandemic. But for now, I think I'd prefer to leave the technology impact separate and maybe we could come back to that. Um, So that maybe get us started, Leah. Yeah, I I think I would actually, I would, I I really like the way you framed that evolution because the thing that I have observed over the course of my involvement in these projects as well is, is very much what Pat has said is that a lot of people, I mean, there was a period of time where within a year, I think there were seven or eight groups in all the little local areas around Sheridan who all, all of a sudden had socialization committees and groups and action tables and working groups. And it seemed that everyone was trying to solve the problem of isolation. And yet, as Pat said, in so many cases, isolation was as a result of a broader systemic issue, uh, a more base level challenge or need that was not being met. And so you can do all kinds of things to make sure people aren't isolated and there's friendly visiting. But that doesn't, as Pat said, that doesn't solve the fact that they're that they're hungry and are not having their medical needs met. So I think isolation you know, it's, it almost became this sort of like a buzzword for a little while that, you know, we have to figure out how to help people who are isolated. Everyone must be alone. They're locked in their houses. Um, and I think now we're, we're beginning to crest on the other side of that in some, in some ways as people are recognizing that isolation and loneliness are far more tightly integrated into a lot of the other systemic hierarchies that we have to address, particularly as we're seeing this emergence of you know, dealing with equality and diversity and inclusion, you know, in lots of different, on lots of different parameters, right? Mm -hmm. So I think as people are recognizing the interplay there, we're starting to see a bit of a different focus in how people are thinking about addressing isolation. Um, And I, I just recently saw a news article too, what I think caps this off nicely is that people are trying to veer away from describing people, you know, it's not vulnerable, they're valuable. Right. So it's, you know, I think it's in the UK and it's it's one of those things that if we're changing the language, right, they're, they're, they're isolated for a reason that doesn't necessarily mean that they are vulnerable or incapable or any of those things. It means that circumstances perhaps have left them isolated for one reason or another. And I so I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift in, you know, it's not just let's throw social programs at the problem. Let's throw socialization at it. You know, what are the other things that people need and how might they collectively uh, support enhanced socialization and social inclusion? Thank you. Well, it's you a, it's a bit of said, evaluation, yeah. No, 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 it's good. You both said a lot about your vision for, um, for approaching the problem. Is, is there anything else you would like to add about that? Leah? Yeah, um, I, I think my vision for it is really acknowledging that social isolation and loneliness are not problems in iso- in isolation, even though that's a weird phrasing of it, and they are not limited, not limited <laughs> to the moment, you know, <laughs> right? I know it's the word, moment. Um, but I think as we've seen, particularly with the pandemic. Um, a lot of people are lonely and isolated for a lot of different reasons that have nothing to do with the traditional things that you may associate with isolation as a challenge in an older population. So, so my vision for it is that, you know, the problems are recognized 
for where they actually reside and we explore a little bit more the cause and effect of you know poor medical care inadequate housing all of those things and how all of those things contribute to isolation across the lifespan and contribute to loneliness across the lifespan and so i, I think it, to sum it up more clearly my vision for it is to look a little bit more upstream about what is causing some of these issues by the time someone reaches 70 or 80 years old and they find themselves isolated what happened in the preceding 20 30 years that contributed and i know we're not going to get too much into the tech issue but you know as pat alluded to the technological divide plays a role right you know you know um uh, various other security risks like food security financial insecurity they all contribute to it so that's my vision for it that we look a little bit earlier and start thinking about prevention as opposed to only sort of developing social programs to help people get out of their house or talk to people on the phone. Thank you. Pat, do you have anything to add about that? Um, well, again, I think Leah positioned that very well. I think what I might add to it is my vision includes not just looking at prevention and what led to this from an individual perspective, but I, Leah initially talked about some of the systemic issues. So, you know, I, I envision, for example, um, looking at how we design housing and how we design communities in a much broader way, because typically we warehouse older adults or we have housing units for older adults in where I live out in the country where the land is cheaper. And so that leads to transportation barriers. and. You know, I think it, it, isn't always, it does not always reside within the individual. It's the way we envision our communities. Um, I, one of the projects I alluded to that I'm working on right now involves social prescribing, where we're really trying to change the culture within the medical system to recognize that, you know, medical interventions are not always necessary. And the presenting challenge that someone might bring to a physician's office may well have a different kind of root cause or maybe related to loneliness or anxiety. So if we can shift the way we even view aging, boy, that's a big one. I, you know, one of the things I get asked to speak about most frequently is ageism. And so I think we need to work on an individual level, as, as Leah said, I think we need to change the whole, all the language, as Leah mentioned, from vulnerable to valuable. We still have too many people in our society, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe, who look at aging as a time of decline, when if we can shift that narrative to looking at it as a time of growth and development, that's part of my vision. So I think it's multi-leveled, definitely technology. Um, I think we've learned in the pandemic that we need to do a far better job of making technology accessible you know, and supporting individuals. But I will add one thing I read yesterday that surprised me a little bit uh, was a study that just came out of England saying that older adults who had over 60 in their study found that older adults who had no contact with technology with anybody during the pandemic fared better than older adults yeah. that had access to technology. Did you see that, Leah? I, I, that my, I wondered which one of us would bring it up yeah, first. Yeah, I know, because... it popped up in my newsfeed yeah. and said that uh, somehow that contact, when it was only through technology, resulted in that feeling of being more lonely. Uh, so yeah, I, think I was really intrigued by that too. Yeah, I figured what I thought we probably both had seen it. Leah and I did not talk before. Yeah. <laughs> 
but uh, I mean, that definitely is an area. And, and I think, you know, much of my focus now, when I worked with Leah and at the college, all, our focus was always implicitly intergenerational. But my focus since I left the college has been more explicitly looking at intergenerational um, responses. And so I think, you know, there's, you shouldn't get Leah and I going because we could probably think of a dozen things related to our vision that we think could address social inclusion. Thinking, speaking of language, Leah, that's why we don't use social isolation. It's why we don't use, you know, we, we're very careful with the language mm -hmm. uh, that we use, yeah. but inclusion is more positive mm -hmm. and can affect anybody of any age, as Leah said. Perfect. So I'm going to give a long answer to all your comments because I've been holding <laughs> and now it's going to burst. So I'm going to go ahead. I think firstly, thank you for this lovely and candid, uh, you know, back and forth of ideas and with coming to language and Paul and I have been working quite a bit. Uh, uh, we use the word connected autonomy because I think that's the root cause of uh, how we can solve this. We need both the elements, which then helps bring competence to live comfortably. Uh, the other word which we use a lot is social connectedness. So personally, like, because I know in the UK, you have Ministry of Loneliness, and that's the word I'm not very comfortable with. And then there's another European country which started a similar ministry. Um, so we use, and we have a summit coming up in September. I think I sent out the invite also, personalizing social connectedness, because while it's connected, it's also personal in nature. Um, we've had different guests who've spoken about the range of issues, right? So the episode before yours is about um, uh, the wisdom project, exchange project, which is intergenerational friendships of college students, uh, so university students across Canada have done, I think Ontario and Quebec have done this. We've had people who are training people in technology to address the digital divide barrier. We've had guests who explicitly deal in narrative gerontology. Um, uh, so we've, we've, we've had different people who've been doing this. So it makes me smile that we did our homework well before like we've had guests like you who, who tell us and the other guests have mentioned about how uh, senior housing are not catering to the diverse cultures. Like I myself come from, you know, in India and one of the things even I personally face is the kind of fun we have back home is not the same. And then when we get our family members, they're very, it's, even if you give them the best of the best, it's very different. So, and a lot of senior housing don't have the Indian food or, you know, the language or so many, so many things, right? So yes, it's, it's multi-pronged. We've had guests who've spoken about systemic issues. We've had guests who've talked about personal. So it's, it's a whole ecosystem of problems and solutions. And our attempt is that this podcast and the summit that follows, we, we become that ecosystem enabler. Uh, because every business has their own value proposition. We personally think isolation needs a marketplace approach where everybody gets, firstly, all the vendors have to be in one place. And then there has to be certain level of personalization for helping say person A do this. And if you see the agenda of the summit, I have also mentioned one of the panelists on prescribing for social isolation, because now that you're prescribing play therapy for children because my background in public health. So everything that you said is like on the summit's agenda, like 
like keynote it's, it's like as if i don't know as if maybe my spirits were around yours when i was making that agenda we're the and, teaser trailer we're the teaser trailer that yeah you're yeah, yeah. For the summit. It, it, it's 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 a it's a it's got to be in clubhouse and not zoom just to you know to be the new cool thing so we want to try a new platform <laughs> but <laughs> and also feel cool about it so uh but yeah no this makes me so happy that it's it's just because we we're not we're not in this domain for long like paul and i ventured in this a few months ago let's say october seriously and before that i've been playing with this since january max last year january maximum right so we are new in this domain but doing podcasting work talking to so many people like you know when you're coming to an expert level of like from outside understanding what experts are telling us is just real joy like so it's like yeah we're doing our homework right in some ways and uh, so my next question is that given that we've covered this wide range of a multi-pronged approach to isolation and um, if if we're looking at solving this what will be the opportunities and what will be the challenges in solving inclusion in a multi-pronged way go ahead pat well i think I think actually we, we alluded a little bit to the impact of the pandemic and as devastating as that has been for many people, I do think that as we emerge from the heights of the pandemic, the opportunity is now to do something because we have that attention that has been focused so much on older adults, albeit a lot of, a lot of it has been in long-term care, but I think we can leverage that coming out of it. It's the time to really make change, I believe, at a societal level. Uh, I personally, when people say we're going back to normal, I'm thinking, no, I don't want to. I think it's our time to change that narrative, to change what it looks like. So I think, I, I think in many ways there are opportunities, particularly in the area around technology, uh, to increase access, training, and ongoing support for older adults. I think there are opportunities to totally rethink how we design communities uh, the pandemic has shown all of, all of us on this call today that people can work remotely. So I think all of those things will have an impact on how we shape the future. So there are many opportunities. In terms of addressing uh, needs and responses by older, for older adults, I would say the one barrier, I'm not sure if you worded it as a barrier, the one challenge, one challenge I see is that people have short memories. And that once things return to whatever this new society looks like and get on with their lives and get maybe back working a little bit, it's gonna be very easy because we've seen it happen before. It will be easy to forget some of those things and, and maybe not address them, which is why I think we have that unique opportunity to do something right now. The other opportunity I believe, and we don't have time today probably, to address it to any great extent, but there have been many, oh, like countless stories during the pandemic of older adults contributing to their communities. And so I think if we can, again, shift that narrative to looking at older adults as resources, we have a chance to change the language and the whole context. You know, I think of all the nurses and doctors, for example, it was well-documented, that came out of retirement uh, to assist in long-term care or to assist with vaccinations or whatever. 
So I, I think if we want to seize that opportunity, it's there for us right now on many, 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 many levels. If you think of it from the World Health Organization's uh, age-friendly cities components, for example, if you look at every one of those domains, there are some uh, unique opportunities presenting themselves. The challenge is always the will, I think, to change. I don't know, Leah, if that gives you something to segue into. Yeah, and, and let me apologize because my, my call dropped halfway through, through what Pat was saying. So apologies if I, I missed a part of it or I repeat something that you said. But I, I think you're very right to identify this as a time of, you know, this is the seize the moment time, right? I mean, if, if you're not going to make changes in long-term care, when are you going to make changes in long-term care, right? You know, in, in a lot of domains, I feel like, you know, you've, you've now really seen the limits of those systems and the challenges have been very clearly identified. You can't really equivocate about it. And so, you know, the time is now to reevaluate and reimagine some of these structures. And, and I think one of the resultant outcomes from that is going to be that people are going to be reimagining how they would like to age. And I think that sort of ties back to a lot of the things that, that Pat was saying is, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you consider this and, and how do you build those structures and consider all the different domains in which we can make some changes, right? You know, there's, there's been reporting about people who are, are now far more hesitant about going into any kind of congregate living facility mm -hmm. as a result of what happened during the pandemic. So what does that mean for housing? What does that mean for transportation? What does that mean for various social support services, right? You know, you've also heard a lot of stories of millennials moving back in with other family members, for example, as a stereotype, right? So, you know, all of a sudden, there's probably going to be an increase in intergenerational housing. What does that mean for how the younger half of that intergenerational pairing now uh, views aging? And how do they see their role in supporting healthy aging for their family members and for their communities? So, I mean, I think I think it's a, it's a time where you know now is the time to test those solutions now is the time to let people be creative and and fund that creativity um in a way that doesn't just duplicate work that has been done before or sort of like i said earlier create an age an active uh, an action group for social isolation in every community because we all need to study social isolation right you know allow the people to to try those new things and share the outcomes so that things that work can be scaled up and and used elsewhere and the things that you know maybe don't move the needle that far, um, then we know about it. And you know you don't have duplication, replication of that effort. So I think it's I think it's about seizing the moment and you know trying to do those things that we may have previously thought were not possible, but because of the pandemic, we've now seen perhaps are more are more plausible than we may have thought that they were before. What advice would you have for a company like ours? Do you want to leave with this one, Leah? That's, that's a, it's a good question. You know, I think uh, I keep doing what you're doing. I think yeah. bringing together bringing together diverse perspectives in a way that can be broadly shared is never a bad thing. Um, you know, I think even even from from Nam's sort of uh, description of what the summit is all about and all of those different other guests you've had on this podcast, it sounds like you're taking a a holistic approach to this issue, which I certainly applaud and I would encourage you to continue doing. Um, you know, I, I think there, you know, maybe there's additional strategic partnerships too, right? You know, how can this platform, this podcast, the work that you're doing, 
um, be a voice for underrepresented or um, you know typically under underseen or underheard groups who may have meaningful things to say about the topic. So you know it's great that you're talking to you know two researchers in aging, <laughs> you know, collectively have been exploring these issues for a couple of decades, right? But you know, maybe there maybe there are local community groups who wouldn't have a platform otherwise. So I would say perhaps just to sort of seek out some of those opportunities to, you know, get the, the ground level perspective and, and see how that may then help inform other research and implementation. I echo what Leah says when you said how long you've been doing this. I thought, wow, you've been doing a great job, really. And I also really like that holistic approach. The only thing I might add, and my apologies if you've already done this, when Leah talked about expanding that network to community groups, for example, who may not have another platform, I would expand it even further and I'd be always starting from the perspective of what does the older adult him or herself have to say about this and maybe providing a platform for older adults who are not necessarily affiliated with any organization to share their thoughts on some of the uh, potential solutions that we've identified today. So I, I would always start from listening to what the older adult has to say about what their needs and interests are. I don't know if that's helpful but um. that's helpful no thank you like we do have um, we haven't released all the episodes so we do have some episodes which we have interviewed Paul smiling so we we had because it's hard like you said right who is isolated who's willing to talk you know and then and so we we've spoken to some people I think they're not isolated they're super connected and they are older adults who've like as has come and spoken about this. So I think when we release it, I'll email you those episodes. Um, but Paul, you have something to say. I've seen you smile and react. But <laughs> That's a no, curious smile. No, it's very, it's very good. Uh, ecosystem, as you both said. Um, yeah, the, the, we've tried to take the 360 degree viewpoint on, on all of it. And yes, we've, we've, yeah. talked, to, we've talked to some very interesting older adults and and uh, oh, it's such an it is it's a very how to put it. Um, Leah, early on, you said this was a problem long before the pandemic, and I agree with that. It's quite apart. We shouldn't be looking at it and saying, "Oh, the pandemic, and now it's over and, and it'll yeah. go away." No, no. There's an underlying problem. Um, to me, it affects every, all of the strata of, of society. Um, you've talked about people without certain resources. I think you can have all the resources in the world and be isolated, socially isolated. It can be difficult for all sorts of people. Um, you've talked about some of the cultural questions that's interesting too um, housing do people live intergenerationally will they do some groups live that way others not these are all all very pertinent questions but it's a growing demographic it's a large demographic it's growing even larger and so put it one way or another the challenge of addressing isolation or the challenge of inclusion, there's a challenge. So thank you both for talking about that. Yeah, and I think four of us are researchers, primary first, 
and whatever we do secondary right so it's 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 always good to start with understanding like as much as you can about the issue and then then when you claim that this is what we are solving at least you know you're claiming authentically that this little piece of the I'm forgetting the English. What is that needle out of hasting? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm forgetting. What is that? Pro that's the right metaphor. That's the right metaphor. Okay. So that's a little bit that we are doing, I guess, uh, when you'd make product development or because when you do technological solutions, it has to be very streamlined. What is the problem? Because it has to be scalable. So it has to be very cleanly identified. Otherwise, you can't build a good technology solution or whatever solution, even programmatic solution on it. And so before we go, I would like you to tell how can people find you, reach you now that you have different organizations. So if you can each tell us about your websites or social media, whatever you like. Um, I'll go ahead because I think Leah froze, uh, her, her screen froze for a minute. Oh, she's back. Do you want to go ahead then, Leah? I'm sorry, I missed the question. It dropped me again. No, I'll, I'll go ahead then if you like. Reach. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Go ahead, Pat. Okay, which is about how people reach you. You can reach me through my email, which is just pat at kaleidoscopeconsulting.net or my website is www.kaleidoscopeconsulting.net. And you can find the Center for, for Elder Research at elderresearch.sheridancollege.ca. And from there, you can see a link to a lot of our, our published work, the things that we can that we are able to share um, publicly, and um, other resources and uh, links to opportunities that we have. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you both very much. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. us. Good luck with your continued work. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Wish you all the best. Thank you.